It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Sam Dar. Dr. Dar is a super elite provider and first reached the level of Invisalign Elite Advantage Provider in 2007. Dr. Dar has treated over 1,800 patients with Invisalign in his Vancouver, British Columbia practice since 2000. A bilingual native of Montreal, Dr. Dar is a member of the American and Canadian Association of Orthodontists and a fellow of the World Federation of Orthodontists. He received his DDS from McGill University with distinction in 1994 and a master's degree with specialty in orthodontics from the University de Montreal, where he also taught undergraduate orthodontics. So without further ado, I'll turn the program over to Dr. Sam Dar. Dr. Dar, you now have the floor. Good morning or good day, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, today's topic will be Make Your Invisalign Finishes a Perfect 10. Um, I'll, I'll be sharing with you some of, my, uh, some of the tips that I use to help me achieve good results. Um, I just want to let you know that these are my opinions and these are humbly speaking about my experiences uh, to share with you what I've been doing over the last few years to obtain good results. Uh, just quick note about your speaker. Um, I, pr I live and practice in Vancouver, Canada, um, and I have an Invisalign practice downtown um, and a secondary practice, which is 80% Invisalign. So um, I've treated quite a few Invisalign cases and made more mistakes than most people probably on the line today. So I'd like to share with you some of the successes and some of the tough challenges that I had along the way. Now, making the Invisalign, making your uh, finishes a perfect 10 really relies on several factors. It is not one factor in particular that leads to that, but it's a process that starts as of day one. Uh, to begin with, I'll be starting off with a case, a surgical case that I'd like to share with you that we recently just finished or debanded, um, and that in, uh, will include several of the steps that I normally would take with Invisalign. So this is simply an example, and then we'll go through the detailed step that I usually go through for every finish. So here we have um, a 25-year-old female patient, healthy, um, her chief concern is the overbite, which basically translates to overjet and aesthetics. Uh, she got, uh, in terms of TMJ health issue, she has an occasional click upon maximum opening only, but otherwise asymptomatic with no deviation, no limitation of movement. She's class 2 div 1 with a retrognathic mandible. Um, she has a muscle strain. You can see that she forces her lip to close to seal them completely, 7 millimeter over jet. Her lower midline is slightly deviated to the left by 1 millimeter, and she's missing all her wisdom teeth. The treatment plan uh, for this healthy young lady is um, Invisalign, started off with Invisalign in a combination with orthognathic surgery, namely mandibular advancement surgery. Um, the surgeon that I work with and I deal with would normally place mini screws or temporary anchorage devices, and these are usually placed in the OR, uh, and we place two TADs per quadrant. We end up with eight TADs in total. Again, these are placed in the OR, and then elastics are run through right after. Uh, we had to do a refinement stage uh, to detail the occlusion, and finally we finished with retention with Vivera retainers. 
we we started off with her first course of, of Invisalign was 11 upper and lower aligners, and that didn't really take long, six months. Most of our surgical cases usually require upriding the, the teeth over the basal bone and then allow the surgical movement to bring the teeth into a class one and then uh, find the occlusion at the end. Uh, so the surgery plan was a BSSO for mandibular advancement. No genioplasty was done. Once the surgery was done and healing was allowed to occur for a few weeks, a refinement uh, course was done that gave us eight upper and lower aligners. And I usually have my patients wear the aligners in refinement 10 days each, especially post-surgery. Teeth tend to move so much faster. So total treatment time, including surgery, was 11 months, and retention was done with Vivera retainers. So let's follow through clinically and see what had happened. Um, again, seven uh, millimeter overjet, class two case. And looking at her initial pan, um, the eights would be, uh, were missing. Um, and these are usually extracted in the OR should there be a need to have those extracted. Looking at a CEF, again, no significant finding. You can see the overjet a bit better on the CEF and the profile and frontal CEF as well, a PA CEF. And I take my own records uh, at the initial treatment and just prior to surgery and send them all to the surgeon for his analysis. So pre-surgery at this point, we've aligned the, uh, we've aligned the teeth but the, and we coordinated them. They're obviously not fitting into a class one just yet. So she goes into the surgery, and one week post-surgery, uh, she healed, this patient healed real nicely. There's not much swelling, but you can see how she's tripoding. Basically, she's biting on the back molars and on the anterior teeth only. I like to see my patients one week post-surgery simply to see how the, line, uh, the midlines are aligned and how the teeth are fitting anterior posteriorly. More often than not, we have to deal with the vertical and sock in the bite, but this looks very good one week post-surgery. And this is how she wears the elastics. She wears the aligners and the elastics full-time for two to three weeks just to allow the healing process. Um, and when she comes back, uh, we'll check the occlusion and see how we can f uh, finish the bite and the occlusion. So there she is, one month post-surgery. You can see she still has a bit of a posterior open bite. At that point, we bond buttons, which is what I refer to as finishing elastics, and run elastics from the upper buttons to the lower. Uh, the aligners are modified at this point, simply crown and bridge scissors. You can hollow out the aligner to accommodate these buttons that are bonded. You notice that the tags are still placed in there. They're not being used at this point, but I like to leave them in there just in case I need them for anchorage purpose. And here's what uh, three weeks of elastic will give us. The bite will sock in quite nicely at this point. Uh, three weeks of full-time elastic wear. Again, remember they're wearing the aligners and the elastics at the same time, day and night. In this case, we're showing elastics only, but patients wear elastics and aligners at the same time. Now, at this point, the bite is socked in nicely. I still like if you look at the anterior region, you'll see how the incisors are not as aligned as I'd like them to be. At this point, I'm comfortable doing refinement. Um, so we'll take an impression, or at this point, we'll take a scan, uh, send it in for refinement. The patient, um, it's been a couple of months since surgery. She can open wide enough. So taking a scan or an impression uh, is not a big deal at this point. So we can 
find the, we can fine tune the occlusion a bit better, but we were able to suck in the bite, which is really the important part first. And by the end of it, teeth are well aligned, the, uh, the midlines are well aligned, class one canine and molar relationship, teeth are sitting perfectly well in an ideal occlusion. So this was um, just a little, I guess, appetizer to show you what, why finishing is important and at what stage and how do we plan for finishing. Granted, this was a surgical case, but let's look at any type of case and what are the steps that I consider when I'm considering finishing the case in a nice class one occlusion. The treatment plan is obviously the first step and probably the most important point. Um, we'll look at overcorrection, um, the use of elastics, Trimming the posterior segment of the aligners, there are times where I still do that. I do it less frequently, but it still needs to be done every now and then. Um, accurate amount of interproximal reduction is key as well. Um, detail pliers, the use of detail pliers, we'll, we'll touch up on that. Um, occlusal adjustment is a must, just like in any uh, orthodontic appliance or any orthodontic system to finish the occlusal, occlusal adjustment is mandatory really and monitoring the aligner and the tracking and interproximal contact throughout treatment from day one and finally case refinement that being mid-course correction or refinement if need be. So let's take them one step at a time. Let's look at evaluating the ClinCheck and I cannot overemphasize how important this step is. Um, taken from this uh, seven habits of highly effective people, the second habit is applies not only to orthodontics but to almost anything in life. Begin with the end in mind. When you're sitting down to, to, to set up the clinch check, remember that at the end of the day, at the end of the clinch check, you're going to get what you prescribed. So getting the prescription right, making sure that you got what you requested in the first place is extremely important. I have noticed in the past, for instance, when I used to get um, a posterior open bite, a slight posterior open bite, I came to realize that early on when I set up my ClinCheck, my teeth were not set up in an ideal occlusion, so it was an oversight on my behalf. Um, so you do get what you prescribe. So what I want to look at is the transverse. I want to look at the posterior open bite. If I'm requesting expansion in the posterior region or if I'm correcting a posterior crossbite, did I really get enough expansion according to the ClinCheck? Uh, so we want to make sure that we have nice, not only anterior, but posterior overbite and overjet. I want to look at intercuspation. I want to make sure I have a positive occlusal contact. In other words, my posterior teeth in the ClinCheck are set up to have a positive occlusal contact. When you magnify them 500% and look at them from the lingual surface, you want to make sure that there is contact. The upper lingual cusp are actually touching and in contact with the lower teeth. I want to make sure the, the marginal ridges are leveled, um, and this I actually have set up in my preferences to level the marginal ridges of the posterior teeth, um, anterior overbite and overjet. So we're really looking at, at Andrew's six keys to normal occlusion. Uh, no rotations, no crowding, obviously, no interproximal spaces. I want to make sure that I'm happy with the tip and torque, especially on the anterior teeth, but not overlooking the posterior teeth. When we're requesting dental expansion on arch development, we want to make sure that the upper teeth are not simply tipped buckly, but the teeth are translating. In other words, we're getting buccal crown torque as well. 
arch symmetry is a must. Um, many a times uh, we get nice ideal overbite and overjet anteriorly on the right and on the left-hand side, but you notice that the symmetry is not present. In other words, the right-hand side might have a better canine prominence, um, and that will, even though we have an ideal overjet, we end up with an asymmetry or a skewed arch in both arches, the upper and the lower. So make sure you look at it from the occlusal view. Make sure you have nice symmetry between right and left-hand side because you will only catch up or you will only notice it at the end when the patient smiles and you notice you have your buccal corridor on one side is probably a bit more prominent than the other side. And at that point, you will need refinement to go back and expand that one arch. So it is something simple to catch if you look at it, if you look at the clincheck from the occlusal view. And obviously, smile aesthetics and midline, especially the upper midline. I explained to the patient because of asymmetry between right and left-hand side, just like in any organ of the body, we have some, we have asymmetry in the teeth or in the size and the shape of the teeth as well, which may lead sometimes to an discrepancy between the upper and the lower midline. My concern is to align the upper midline with the filtrum of the lip and the, in the middle of the nose, but if the f lower midline falls off a little bit by half a millimeter, so long as I have a canine class one relationship, I'm happy with that. So it's something you want to check and explain to the patient if the question arises. So looking at it from here, you can see looking at it from the anterior view, and this is the same patient that we looked at earlier, looking at it from the occlusal view as well, superimposing with the grid. The grid will allow me to measure the amount of movement as well. Not only do I use the grid, I also use the superimposition tool whereby the teeth are blue and you can see again what is reasonable, what is realistic, did I expand a little too much, um, what, what do I consider realistic. The age of the patient is also a factor. I may be comfortable expanding two to three millimeters on a 14-year-old, maybe not so much on a 50-year-old. Um, again, you want to expand. You want to look at it from the lingual view to check the contact, modify and change the, uh, the clincheck as necessary to make sure you get what you want. Now, what we look at final tooth position, obviously, but we also want to make sure that the stages leading to the final position are realistic as well. Certain tooth movements uh, we know will not occur. For instance, if a canine is blocked up buccally or if it's, uh, the canine is high, there's no point in pulling down on that canine until we've created enough space mesiodistally. So you want to make sure that as that tooth is extruding, for instance, we have enough space to accommodate um, in the arch to accommodate that canine. So make sure the creation of the space occurs first and then the extrusion follows. You want to evaluate every single tooth movement. And the other thing is you want to make sure that you got what you prescribed. Sometimes we, we, we give notes and request certain tooth movement. And for, for some reason, while for most parts we do get what we want, there are times where um, either an oversight or simply the technician did not get what you're trying to say. Make sure that you actually got the movement that you prescribed. If there's any ambiguity, just make sure you go back and rephrase that sentence and explain to them exactly what you need. Don't just settle because you think that the technician did not understand your request. Go back and rephrase it and use simple words and you will get what you want. Now, overcorrection is a second step, and again, this is something preemptive that we use that we don't necessarily always end up using these overcorrection aligners. Overcorrection aligners I routinely prescribe 
whenever there is interproximal reduction um, in extraction cases or in a case where there's a, especially a large diastema. <clears throat> so these virtual seat chains simply tightened interproximal contact. Um, if we were a bit overzealous when we did IPR, we may end up with spaces at the end. So these overcorrection aligners, we usually get two or three aligners. Um, at the end of the treatment, that will help us just tighten the contact a little bit more. Having said that, make sure that if the IPR that you've done is exactly accurate and at the end of the last aligner, not the overcorrection, but the last active aligner, there are no interproximal spaces, then please don't use those overcorrection aligners. They can only do harm. In other words, they may squish the teeth into a space that doesn't exist, and the only way the teeth will go is to either overlap or intrude. Um, so if there is no interproximal space left at the end, just do not dispense these uh, overcorrection aligners. Same apply for extraction cases and diastema cases. Just have them ready in case you need them, and if you find you don't need them, just then discard those aligners. Or you may need to use one or two, but not all three of them, whatever the case may be. You want to make that judgment call. Now, finishing elastics, finishing elastics is a really an important part of not only surgical cases, but any cases. Um, I find uh, that transient posterior open bite that we get at the end of the treatment may be due to a lot of factors. We already mentioned that one of the factors is we never had them set up in the clin check that way. In other words, we did have some posterior open bite left in the clin check. Um, another reason would be, and I find this occur more frequently, in patients that have a treatment plan that goes longer than 18 months. Uh, bruxers and grinders are also um, another group of patients where we find that transient posterior open bite occur more frequently. Whatever the case may be, I'm comfortable using these finishing elastic and elastics in the aligner just before last. I, I personally don't like to modify my last aligners for argument's sake, if we had 25 aligners, um, then I would like to modify aligner 24 and not 25. In other words, I like to bond button on the four, five, six, both upper and the lower arches, both sides if need be, and then simply run my finishing elastics. Remember, at this point, you need to modify the aligner, use crown and bridge scissors, um, or whatever you, you're comfortable using. Some people like to use a slow handpiece and simply trim out the aligner to accommodate these buttons. So have the patient wear the aligners and the elastics simultaneously. More often than not, two to three weeks will do the trick. Sometimes in surgical cases, you may need to extend it to four weeks, but two to three weeks is routine to get that socked-in occlusion in the posterior. It does take an extra appointment just bonding these buttons. It takes no longer than 15 minutes, but the occlusion will be socked in nicely. So what I do routinely now, I explain to my patients, you have to wear the aligners and the elastics simultaneously. Um, if the patient has an important presentation or if it's a student that has an exam and they need to leave the elastics out for a couple hours in a day, that's not the end of the world so long as they keep wearing the aligners, obviously, but just run the elastics and the aligners at the same time. Now, taking it a step further, what I may do sometimes is ask my patients on the day they're coming to see me in two weeks, 
to wear the elastics only at nighttime without the aligner. And they're allowed to do that one night only, and that's usually the night before they come and see us in the office. So if we send them off for 14 days, see them back in 14 days, we'll say for 13 days you wear elastics and aligners full-time on day 14 or on night 14, I should say, at night. Just wear the elastics without the aligners. And what I find happens is it really does suck in the bite a lot better, and the only patients only need to do that that one night only. If they come back after two weeks and I find it's looking good but not perfect, I may send them back home with elastics for one more week to suck in the bite, and then at that point, we remove the buttons and the attachments and just give them that last aligner and have them settle in it. And I'll have them wear that aligner for a period of four, five, six weeks sometimes. The aligner will lose some of its uh, retention. It might feel a little bit loose. Well, basically what that aligner is doing is serving as a tooth positioner at this point, tweaking and finishing uh, the teeth into a, a right position, and uh, because it loses some of its elasticity, it becomes almost like a retainer, allowing the teeth to settle in nicely. Typically, I use three and a half ounce uh, elastics, medium to light force. Remember, you don't need a lot of force. These, te these teeth have been moved, have been moving. The periodontal ligament is widened. The cells on the periodontal ligament have been primed. Uh, so it doesn't need a lot of force. It doesn't take a lot of force to suck in the bite. So let them go uh, for two weeks, see them again, and if you need to, uh, to do it uh, for an extra week or two, then be it to get that uh, bite. Now, trimming the aligner is another aspect. Now, I rarely will do trimming the aligners at the same time as elastics. The reason for that is when we trim the aligner, we, we lose control. We trim the aligner distal to the three or distal to the four, whatever the case may be. Once we trim these aligners, then we have no control over the posterior teeth. Um, so I will never trim an aligner in a case where we did bicuspid extraction or there was a severe cross or there was any kind of dental crossbite at the beginning of treatment. I would trim the aligners if it was a class one to begin with um, and which simply allowing the bite to settle a bit. A rule of thumb is if I retract the cheek and look in the patient's mouth and it, I don't see any light go through between the upper and the lower teeth, I will simply trim the aligners for a couple of weeks, maybe even four weeks. If I find, if I see space between the upper and the lower posterior teeth, then I would run elastics simply. Another factor that I will consider is if a patient is traveling from a different city coming in to see me, I don't like to give them elastics for that time. If I know they can only come back in five, six weeks, then I'm in no rush to put elastics. In a case like that, again, if there was no crossbite to begin with or it was not an extraction case, I will simply trim the aligners. Again, aligner just before last in case we lose control, in case any of these teeth rotate, I want to have that last aligner go back and recapture these teeth. So if a patient is coming from a different city and I know they'll be back again in six weeks, I'm not going to rush in and put elastics. I'll probably trim the aligner, let them go and see them again in six weeks. More often than not, that's all it takes for that bite to settle. Remember, this is a relapse movement. If that posterior open bite was not present at the beginning and we simply caused it by the thickness of the aligner, this is simply a relapse movement. In other words, these teeth are relapsing to their initial uh, spot, so that doesn't take a lot of force. Nature does that quite nicely. But it does take a little bit longer. The bite does take a bit longer to settle than it would with elastics. Elastics usually two to three weeks. Uh, trimming the aligners distal to the canines or the first bicuspids can take up to eight, sometimes even ten weeks before the bite settles in nicely. 
Again, remember to do that on the aligner before last, and we still give them the last aligner, explain to the patient that should, that should that aligner, because the aligner is a bit shorter now, it's a bit smaller, they're more prone to losing it sometimes, so if they lose it, um, they should go into that last aligner, make sure your, their teeth not move, and then come back and see me, and then we'll decide what to do best for them at that point. Um, I may sometimes also trim distal of the upper canines or lower fours or whatever the case may be. Use your judgment as to which teeth need to erupt a little bit more to meet in, and give you a good socked-in occlusion. Um, accurate amount of IPR. Uh, you you want to make sure that if IPR has been prescribed in the ClinCheck, not to do too much or too little. Doing too much will obviously um, give you residual spaces and the proximal spaces at the end of the treatment. Uh, not doing enough, again, will cause either intrusion um, or rotation or even overlap of these teeth basically can cause crowding. Um, and right here I have a picture of the, of the um, IPR gauge. Feel free, especially if you're new to this, uh, feel free to use these gauges. They help quite a bit. And if you're prescribing 0.2, you can simply measure from 0.2 to 0.5, and that is the best um, thing to do. Now, for those of you that don't do IPR all at the same time, um, for instance, if you'd like to do, if you prescribe 0.5 millimeter, you'd like to start with 0.2 and maybe at the next visit do 0.3, make sure you do the 0.2, measure it, and when the patient comes back for the second visit, before you do the IPR, you know you're left with 0.3 millimeters, you simply go in and use the gauge and measure and see how much space you have currently. So if you only have 0.1 millimeter and you need 0.3, you want to make sure that you end up with 0.4 millimeter. It's really a math question. Um, so measure the space before you do the IPR. Same thing applies for diastema. A patient comes in and has a 0.3 millimeter diastema, and for a bolt-in discrepancy or for any reason you need to do more IPR, make sure you measure what the initial space is, and then you add the amount of IPR to that. So if you need to do 0.5 and the patient has 0.3 already, you want to make sure you end up with 0.8 millimeter space at the end. And you can simply overlap a couple of these gauges to end up with a 0.8. Now, um, detail pliers or finishing pliers or dimple-forming pliers, whatever you like to call them, these I use quite often, quite frankly. Um, I never wait to the last aligner. Uh, waiting to the last aligner does not help. Um, I like to see my patients for what, I, what we call uh, a pre-D band check. In other words, I'll see them five aligners before last, and I want to see what needs tweaking. Um, if a tooth is not tracking well, it could be as early as aligner seven or eight sometimes, if the rotation is not occurring as fast as I'd have prescribed in the ClinCheck, then maybe adding a dimple in there will help tuck that tooth back into its position. Um, again, this usually happens on the lower anterior region, I find. Um, so you'll go in um, and check towards the end. If you need to tweak any of these teeth, if a lower central or lower lateral incisor still needs a bit more help, then go in and modify all five last aligners. That gives you a better chance of catching up. So instead of simply modifying one aligner for two weeks, why don't you go ahead and modify the last five aligners, and now that gives you 10 weeks of dimples um, and 10 weeks of uh, a moment that will help hopefully rotate that tooth. One more thing you want to check is make sure that uh, the interproximal contact is patent. In other words, some of these rotations are probably due to lack of sufficient IPR. If you were 
supposed to be doing 0.3 millimeter IPR and you end up doing 0.2, that's going to create binding as you rotate the tooth, and the tooth is not going to have enough space to rotate. So sometimes a dimple-forming plier can help, but you still need to make sure that the interproximal, con the interproximal contact, there is no binding. Um, and here's an example whereby an upper lateral incisor still needs to rotate mesial in a couple of degrees. Again, I wouldn't wait to the last aligner. I'll sort of three or four aligners out. I'll take a look at this and simply add a dimple right here. And what I want to do, this is a mesial in, but I always like to create a moment of a force. So I'd also go in and add another dimple on the distal, a distal out. In other words, I want to do a distal out mesial in, and that simply helps us rotate or pivot the tooth along the long axis. So instead of simply doing a mesial in, I'd like to add another smaller dimple maybe on the distal. So distal out mesial in will help me rotate that tooth mesial in a lot better, a lot faster and it'll give me a moment of a force. So you can see it here from the occlusal view, um, how we get a mesial in uh, rotation moment, and it will accentuate the mesial a little bit more. In other words, I may get, go in and do two, three dimples on the mesial um, along a straight line all along the mesial surface, and maybe one on the lingual. Remember, we don't want to get a lot of distal out, but we do want to help rotate that too, so you do get some distal out, but it's mostly mesial in rotation. And here's a good example. You can see where that dimple is, where that dimple was added, um, and Again, over a span of three or four or even five aligners, um, I bet you anything that tooth will rotate quite nicely. Again, remember to go in with the floss and check the interproximal contact. In a case like this, I may actually modify two, three aligners and see my patients a bit more frequently than usual. In other words, I may end up seeing them at four or six weeks as opposed to 10 weeks in case I need to modify anything, in case I need to go in with a polishing strip at that point and make sure there is no binding as well. Now, occlusal adjustment, just like in any orthodontic system, we cannot overlook that, it's, and it's an important part of what we do. Um, so it's done either alone or in conjunction with finishing elastics. Sometimes if you have a, a plunging cusp on an upper six or an upper seven, a plunging lingual cusp, you actually do have lingual contact, but the buckle, uh, but the buckle uh, cusp tips are really not sitting well. Um, uh, they're not occluding well against the lower teeth. And that's simply that one premature contact. And I find this occur more frequently in distalization cases and in a cross-bite correction cases, whereby that lingual cusp tip uh, has been pristine and virgin, is never worn down. So you go in and adjust that bite and then run your elastics and you'll see how nicely that tooth will sit in there. So I'll do it either during treatment if I find there's a premature contact. And patients are really good at telling you, hey doc, I feel that one tooth touching more than the rest of the teeth. Um, and you'll check in and you're sure enough you'll find either there's a slide or with the articulating paper there's a premature contact. Just go ahead and adjust it and continue with the treatment. So like I said, a dental cross bite correction and distalization cases, you're more prone to see uh, these premature contact. Um, so at the end of the treatment, uh, once I get to the last aligner, the la uh, obviously I would go in and adjust the bite and allow the bite to settle, uh, be it with elastics, be it with trimming the aligners, and see them again in six weeks, make sure everything's sitting well. And again, before I order my Vivera retainers, I'll go in one more time and adjust the occlusion or at least check the occlusion 
illusion doesn't always need adjusting, but there are times where um, a little adjustment can go a long way. Um, and this here will be a nice example to show you. This is pre-occlusal adjustment. We, we just got to the aligner just before last, and you can see how those posterior teeth are really on both sides are not sitting very well. Um, again, before we go in and trim aligners or run elastics, all I did was simply adjust the bite, and you can tell how much of a difference that made. You can tell how that mandible just auto-rotated about half a millimeter once we got rid of the premature contact, again, especially on the lingual cusp of the upper teeth, and you can see how nicely that occlusion ended up sitting simply with occlusal, occlusal adjustment. So this is a perfect example with um, showing the, um, the use of the articulating paper and the handpiece, how much that can help finishing the occlusion nicely. Now, aligner tracking. Um, obviously, uh, we want to check tracking of the aligners at every visit. Um, this is one example whereby you can see the lower teeth are doing well, but that lower right canine, despite the attachment in there, has not extruded uh, completely. And this is something you'll see mid-treatment or uh, towards the latter half of, of uh, the treatment. And this is, no, I, I find this is due mostly to patient compliance. Patients not wearing the aligners long enough. Uh, extrusion movement, uh, is um, although it's feasible, um, it's very slippery in a sense. If you do get the extrusion and the teeth sit in well and the patient ends up not wearing the aligner for four or five hours, that tooth can easily rebound and go and intrude or go back to its initial position or simply relapse. So I find compliance is really important. Again, in distalization cases and in extrusion cases especially, I find the number one reason why teeth don't track is patient compliance. They could be good wearing the aligner 17 or 18 hours, and in their mind, this is good compliance. Um, certain movement like this, you really request 21 to 22 hours, hoping to get maybe 20 or 21. Um, so compliance is a main issue. Space not being available is another uh, reason for these teeth not to extrude. Again, mesiodistally, if you look at the ClinCheck, luckily with the G3 and now with the G4 being released soon in November, um, enough space, enough attention is being uh, paid to the interproximal space uh, simply to allow the extrusion and rotation. We want to see interproximal space, but some of the older uh, ClinCheck setups, you may not have noticed that uh, or you may not have requested enough space mesiodistally, so the tooth may rotate but not fully uh, be able to fully erupt due to the interference of the adjacent teeth. So making sure you have enough space um, is key in a case like this. If space is not enough, you simply want to do a mid-course correction or go back in and go in with a polishing strip mesially and distally to that one tooth that is not tracking very well. Um, in this example, for instance, at this point, you can see that the attachment is not fitting anymore at all in the aligner. Um, this. Uh, this point has gone far enough that I probably would do a mid-course correction or simply remove the attachment, continue with the treatment, and recapture it when we do the refinement at the end. Or simply, if everything looks great except for that one canine that is lagging behind, I may bond buttons on the buckle and on the lingual and run a bootstrap elastic and extrude it. Remember, in cases of extrusion of canines, especially in canines and premolars, absolutely nothing happens for the first two weeks with the elastics. Um, so you want to be patient and allow it four weeks. The first two weeks, nothing will happen. Four weeks later, you'll notice that that tooth has extruded nicely. 
Again, you want to go in at, at every visit and make sure with your polishing strip, make sure there's no binding, simply to allow that tooth to extrude. Now, if um, that tooth was not the only problem, in other words, if you have to, to deal with rotation and you have to do refinement, then at that point, um, I will simply go in and do uh, refinement, uh, take a new impression, remove all the attachment, um, and do a refinement, um, and deal with the extrusion at the refinement and keep a close eye on that one tooth. And force delivery is compromised. It could be simply that the aligner is cracked, especially at the corner of the mouth, between the three and the four lower bicuspid um, and uh, and bicuspid. Sometimes the aligner can crack ever so slightly, but enough to compromise the force delivery system. So you want to watch out for that and make sure that everything is in order. If it happens occasionally, you simply move to the next aligner. If it happens at every single aligner, um, then you want to consider maybe rethinking the attachment placement. I find when the patient are removing the aligners and peeling the aligner off, sometimes an attachment right at the corner of the mouth, if the patient is being a little too aggressive, that can simply rip the aligner after a few days. So you want to reconsider that, uh, maybe do a mid-course or refinement at that point um, and request either a different attachment or simply explain to the patient that they need to loosen the aligner from the posterior region and then go in from the anterior and actually remove the aligner from the anterior instead of simply peeling it out because that adds a lot of torquing into the aligner. It can simply rip the aligner and usually the weakest point is right at the corner of the mouth which is the interproximal point between the three and the four between the bicuspid and the cuspid and the lower region especially. And lastly, case refinement, be it mid-course correction or refinement, we can't think or you can't think of these case refinement as a failure. So they're not a failure, they're just a part of the, part of the finishing uh, uh, part of the finishing of the case, if at some point um, there was one tooth that was lagging behind and you look at, at everything and you realize that everything else is moving well except that one tooth, it could have been an oversight on your behalf. You look at the clincheck and you realize that you overlooked something, but if everything else is progressing well, um, I'm a firm believer in keep going with the treatment, remove the attachment, um, and do refinement. However, if you find everything is not tracking well, Again, I'll tell you the first thing from experience, I, I find the reason for that is usually lack of patient compliance. So at that point, you want to consider a mid-course correction, but there's no point in doing a mid-course correction unless you sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with your patient and explain to them that we're basically stalling, whereas, as a matter of fact, we're taking two steps back, we're doing a refinement or mid-course correction at this point. You want to explain it to them, obviously, without being confrontational, that this is really due to them not being uh, compliant or cooperative to begin with, because uh, you don't want to do it twice. One mid-course correction I'll do I will basically, if it comes down to second mid-course correction, I think patient compliance is an issue and you need to talk to the patient for sure and find um, other treatment alternatives. Um, so if everything goes well, and especially these lower anteriors, sometimes you, you look at them and you find they look good but not great, um, again, do not hesitate. Make sure you remove all the attachments, whether you're doing a scan or whether you're doing taking impressions. Remove all the attachment. Uh, take records and send it back for refinement. Um, 
patients um, I find usually complain about attachment. So if it's a my, if if you're talking about minute tooth movement, um, I'll make them happy by not adding any attachments. Um, if there is some intrusion or extrusion required, I'll obviously need to add attachments. But usually in a refinement or in a mid course, you you will tend to use less attachments if at all. And again, that makes the patient happy. It makes the impression more accurate as well. And what I do routinely, if it's um, again, if the refinement is due to minor um, tooth movement, then I will simply have have the patient wear the aligners 10 days uh, each as opposed to two weeks. And again, that makes the patient happy. Um, they, they tend to tolerate it a bit better. They know that usually 12 aligners, if you give them six aligners at a time, 10 days each, then it's really two visits and patients usually wouldn't mind it as much. Uh, so they know what to do. You don't have to give them a lot of instructions when refinement comes. And the refinement appointment, insert of the refinement aligners, um, is usually a lot quicker. You simply dispense the aligner. They have all the instructions. They know what to do or what not to do. You have no IPR to do or you have no attachments to place. This is really a 10-minute appointment. You give them six aligners, have them come back for the other six. Again, this is a case where you have 12 aligners, which I find um, is usually the routine uh, for most of our refinement uh, patients. So when the results are beyond the scope of overcorrection, there are times where a patient comes back and uh, we were overzealous with the IPR and there's more spaces left, but at the same time there's rotations on some of the bicuspid, a couple of degrees of rotation that you like to deal with. Well, I wouldn't give them the overcorrection aligners. I would only give the overcorrection aligners if interproximal spaces are the only issue that I have to deal with. Any other issues, I will just dispose of these overcorrection aligners and simply take records for refinement. Um, and I will deal with the interproximal spaces and any other issue at the same time. And there are also other times where detailed pliers are just not enough. You get to that last aligner, everything looks perfect, but that one lower incisor really needs to rotate mesial in two degrees. And you know in your heart of heart that that detailed plier is not going to do the trick. Just uh, save yourself the aggravation. Go in, take an impression. A couple of aligners or three, four aligners will rotate that tooth because it, it, chances are you will need some spacing in there. So the aligner will probably create a bit of interproximal space first, then will allow the rotation to tuck in, um, and then you can order virtual seat chains if you need to after that as well. But deal with it nicely. Again, no IPR and no attachment is needed, so patients usually don't mind it as much. Um, and again, it can be due to lack of interproximal space. That's the other reason sometimes we get intrusion or crowding um, and you realize everything was coming along well until the end. Um, so the last thing I would recommend for you is to never ever go backwards. I've seen um, some, I've seen some physicians uh, or some dentists that would actually go back take a step back, get to aligner 20, and go back to 19, 18, 17. My advice to you is to never do that um, because relapse is never a linear movement. In other words, just because one tooth moved a certain way uh, when you were doing the orthodontic treatment, when they relapse, they don't exactly relapse in the same linear movement. So don't take a step back. Don't move backwards. Um, I would allow myself to go back no more than one aligner for any reason. If the aligner's cracked, uh, if they lost an aligner, I would mind taking one step back but never more than one aligner. The point is if you find that you have to go back more than one aligner then just stop, hold everything in position, take an impression or a scan and send it in for a refinement or a mid-course correction, whatever the case may be. 
So making your Invisalign finish is perfect, really has to do with with every step of the way, uh, keeping a close eye on the patient. That's why I'm not comfortable giving my patients more than five aligners at a time. I think 10-week period um, is ideal. If there's any problem or if there's any issue, I like to deal with it at that point. So I find 10, uh, 10 weeks is ideal. When we get to 12 or 14 uh, weeks um, interval, um, you, you will lose uh, track of the case sometimes, and you have no other option but a mid-course correction. Again, we always, we, all of us make exceptions. If a patient's flying in from out of town, uh, we may want to give six or seven aligners, but routinely I'd like to give four or five at a time and keep a close eye um, on the progression of the case. So the ClinCheck treatment plan, Spend time on it, modify it as many times as you think is necessary. Go back and review it from every single angle. Um, look at it and make sure you go, make sure that your technician is giving you what you requested, and make sure you're happy with what you requested as well. If you ever have any doubt, um, if it's a case where you're sitting um, sort of on the fence, should I do extraction, should I not do extraction, or should I do it to proximal reduction or not, there's no harm in doing two ClinCheck setup. Do one and then get it back, and then simply request to set up a new ClinCheck with these different criteria and go in and give your criteria. Extraction of a lower incisor, for instance, or interproximal reduction lower five to five, or whatever the case may be. It gives you peace of mind and it, it allows you to intelligently decide which treatment plan you want to follow, but make sure you analyze it from every angle. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't help to simply take an impression or a scan, send it in, and let your technician decide um, you would have failed the patient that way. And the more time you spend at the beginning, the less time you spend at the end. Overcorrection aligners, again, with, with IPR patients especially, sometimes if I think that one tooth is going to be stubborn, I may overcorrect rotations, but I sort of have dropped that. I figure if I need any rotation correction at the end, then I'd rather do refinement rather than deal with it with overcorrection. Um, finishing elastics, finishing elastics, I will do that on many of my cases. I'd say probably 70 to 80 percent of my patients, no more than two to three weeks, just to sock in that bite. It gives the patient a good feeling knowing that their back teeth are touching nicely. Um, again, trimming the posterior segment of the aligners. If I look in and I find there is, I don't see any space between the upper and the lower teeth, but the patient feels it. In other words, I don't see it, but they feel it. That means it's probably a fraction of a millimeter that I'm comfortable trimming the aligner. If it wasn't, if there was no posterior crossbite to begin with, or if there was no extraction. And again, amount of IPR is always well documented in the chart. Detail pliers, don't leave them in the, drawer to, in, the, in the drawer till the end. Make sure you use them when you need them. As soon as you notice a tooth is slipping, go in and take your detail plier and use them in there and help the aligner rotate the teeth that need rotation. Adjust the occlusion. You can never overlook that. And again, monitor tracking at every visit. If a patient comes in and I find one tooth is starting to slip, but not quite, I can still capture it. I'll actually send them back home with the same aligner. I will not dispense new aligners. I may give them chewies and I say, you know what, that one tooth is extruding, that one canine, for instance, is extruding, but not as fast or as well as I'd like it to, and there's no point in moving it to the next aligner. Why don't you go home and use a chewy on this aligner for one more week, and let's meet again next week. If you find everything's tracking well, then you give them aligners and chewies. Again, I may not give five aligners in a case like this. I may give three and see them again in six weeks and see how they're doing. Again, if that one tooth is still slipping, I'll send them 
it back again um, and give them chewies and make sure they use their chewies. I want them really to understand how important it is. As an aside, remember with the chewies, we call them chewies, but patients are not necessarily supposed to chew on them like chewing gum. They're supposed to bite into the chewy and hold it for five, six seconds. And what that does is it will flex the aligner, grab the tooth, and move it. Basically, it will help the aligner hug the tooth. Um, so you want to make sure that the patient is biting into the chewy and holding it for five, six seconds and then letting go, doing it repeatedly. Remember, they don't have to squeeze hard, too hard that their jaw muscles ache. It doesn't need that much force. Um, the muscles of mastication are capable of de delivering a lot of force, so they need to bite hard but not extremely hard that they're in pain and hold it for five, six seconds, let it go, and do it again a few more times. And if need be to do, if you need to do case refinement at the end, don't shy away from that. That's what's going to help you detail the occlusion at the end. Um, I should mention one last thing. Sometimes if I find there is a, a posterior open bite for any reason, um, I would like to sock in the bite before doing the refinement. In other words, I may go in and do two weeks of up and down elastics or finishing elastics, sock in the bite, knowing quite well I still need to do refinement either for spacing issues or for rotation issues or even extrusion issues, but I still like to sock in the bite first and then once everything is set properly, I'll take my impression and or a scan and send it in for refinement, knowing that I don't have to deal with a posterior open bite in the refinement. Um, I'm hoping uh, that 